Uh, I did kind of want to battle with that. It's not an easy book that we're going through. We're going through the first letter of First Peter, or the first letter of First Peter. Man, I'm all over the place today. I'll get there. The first letter of Peter, also known as First Peter, and uh, it's the title of our series has been Standing Out in a Foreign World, and this is a really key element, key topic of the entire uh, book, which has a lot of depth, a lot of things that it gets into, uh, but this is one of the key things that as believers, we looked at really practical ways of you shouldn't look like the world. These are some ways that you should be different, and how we can have joy, another key element is having joy even when things aren't going well, even when we're suffering, that we can have joy, that we can kind of endure those things because of who we know that we are in Christ, who we know that we are as believers. And uh, so that's kind of a big thing in how we are to be standing out in a foreign world that we live in, because we belong, of course, as Christians, we belong to the, or citizens of heaven, as the Bible calls it. And last week, we started off the series, uh, we looked at the first two verses, but our main thing that we did was kind of do some background. I like to always start off a letter at just kind of diving into what is this letter about, who wrote it, when was it written, how do we know these things, and who is it written to, and uh, what is the geographical area, the time period that it was happening, what was going on else in the world. So we looked at kind of a lot of those things to kind of build a context for the letter, and why, and when, and where it was written. And uh, so, if you want to know that, and you don't, weren't here last week, it's online, you can listen to it. Uh, we won't get into that again today, because we did start by reading these first two verses. And again, we wanted to kind of focus on how are we to be standing out in a foreign world. We looked at some of the, kind of the key texts throughout it that highlight that uh, truth. But uh, in these first two verses we looked at, uh, I mentioned last week that we're not going to just skip over some of the really big things that are there. And, uh, but we didn't have time to get into it last week, and so I said we'd do it next week. And next week has come, so here we are. We're going to be getting into some of the bigger topics and things that he drops in in his introduction and how crazy it is that he puts so much into just two verses before, it's like before he even says hello, he just throws some really, really key, huge doctrine. We see the Trinity in there, we see uh, election, we see all kinds of things that have been talked about and debated for years. So let's read through those two verses so we can kind of all be on the same page of what I'm talking about. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We looked at last week that, that he is one of God's chosen, elect, or called apostles, given kind of the uh, authority to help found the church. And that, so he kind of has the authority of Christ given to him by Christ himself. He even says, you know, on this rock I will build my church, Jesus says that to Peter. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Cappadocia, whatever, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Whew. That's a lot. It's a mouthful. 
he first identifies the recipients of this letter in a way that would be nice if he had used any other word because then we could have just not focused so much on this today. But he addresses them as God's elect. God's elect. And he, meaning God's chosen, he even explains it later. He says, chosen according to God's foreknowledge. So these are the same thing that he's talking about. God's elect, God's chosen. And he's not going to stop there. They're not only elect, they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to live in obedience to Jesus and they're covered or they're sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Now when I read that, I think, why, Peter? Why would you pack so much depth and doctrine right in the opening of your letter? Can't you just say, Greetings, grace, like all the other apostles did. He throws all of this in right at the beginning. These couple verses seem to just overflow with what is often considered to be a lot of trigger words. If you walked onto a campus, a Bible school campus, and started saying some of these words, you're going to have like immediate division of parties and ideas, and it's something that's been discussed amongst Christians and theologians and Bible students for centuries. And these are massive topics that have been often, that often lead to deep discussion, which I think is a healthy thing. Sometimes they lead to a little bit unhealthy debate, but it's right here at the beginning. And I wonder, is, is Peter, as he is often known to do, if we look at his actions throughout the Gospels, is he trying to rile them up? Is he attempting to kind of kind of rub them the wrong way or get them kind of uncomfortable? Is he trying to entice a debate? I don't think so. His point in opening with this is not to set off a debate or he's not trying to bring up topics that maybe they had forgotten. He's not trying to bring up something that maybe they didn't understand. And he's not trying to confuse them or worry them or make them wonder things that they don't need to wonder. The point of this to me is clear. And this is why we're going to focus on this today. He is trying to bring encouragement, edification, and assurance of their salvation. That's why he puts this in the beginning of his greeting. And we can see that the way he caps the greeting. Before he even gets to what was common to, to kind of uh, extend grace and peace, he puts that at the end of this, saying to kind of show that this is the point. Grace and peace be yours in abundance because of these things. Because of these things that are true about you, because of these things that identify you, grace and peace be yours in abundance. The whole objective of this introduction is to see them receive that grace, to receive that peace, and that it would come in abundance. And that is exactly what the truths given here in his introduction when we try to really understand them, the way that Peter meant for them to be understood will do for us. They will encourage us. We'll see grace and peace abound in our lives. And this has been my own personal experience. So it's purposefully placed at the start to show its importance. And I believe it's practically placed there because it sets something up for the rest of the letter, it, it sets the stage for these huge topics found throughout the entire letter of Peter. 
Again, as I mentioned already, themes of, of, the, of suffering for Christ and practical ways to live out a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. So he has to bring that in. That's a part of your identity. And ultimately, how we will stand out as Christians today living in a foreign world. All of these things are understood better when we first understand and know this truth that he puts in the beginning. This is going to be my objective today as well. That we don't need to skip over this, as might be tempting sometimes when we see these words all through the New Testament, or pretend it's not there. We can leave here today, I believe, strengthened and encouraged by this truth of God's election that is spread all throughout the Bible, and especially in almost every letter of the New Testament. Before we get in any deeper, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for who you are. We want to thank you, Lord, for your word that stands before us and speaks to us and is alive and active today. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive from you what you would have to say to us. And these words can trigger ideas and and things that we may have heard or things that maybe we misunderstood or misheard as I know that I've experienced in my own life. But I pray, Father, that we would have an open and pure heart to hear what you have to say. What does your word say? What, is you, what are you saying to us today in this truth? And how can it be an encouragement and a strength to us in our daily walk with you? I pray these things and that every word I speak, Lord, would be only your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's get in. So in these first two verses, we see a framed image, I think, of our salvation as believers. It's all just kind of neatly packed into just a couple sentences. This truth applies to the believers that he's writing to. It applies to all of the believers for the last 2,000 years, and yes, it also applies even to us today. This is the basic nutshell truth of our salvation. It's our salvation in a nutshell, as laid out here in Peter's greeting. Let's go through it again. We are saved through the election of God, out of his foreknowledge. And we know this. He first loved you before you knew him, before you did anything, in his foreknowledge, and we'll look at that word a little bit later, a little bit deeper, he elected us. We are then sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is what leads us to Christ and is the continuing work within us day after day, transforming the desires of our hearts, drawing us ever closer to God, and in our relationship with Him. And this is all made possible, of course, through the blood of Christ. It's through the sprinkling of His blood that we are made right before God, right? We are the righteousness of God through Christ. I feel like these are things that you're going to have probably heard before. We're righteous in God's sight because of the covering of Christ's blood. And our salvation then, I love that He ties this in, 
He doesn't just tie in the salvation itself, but the purpose. It comes with a purpose, and that is to live an obedient life to Christ. We're going to look at all of this a little bit more in depth. I just want to first just unpack this nutshell that he throws in right at the beginning of his greeting. So we're chosen by God, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled by the blood for the obedience to Christ. There's almost a linear feel, I think. It's the first, I don't know, there are different ways of thinking. Not everybody is linear like I am. I think of things in a straight line most of the time. And uh, there is a linear feel. It's not completely linear, of course, but I just think that for those of you who have minds like mine, it might help to kind of get that feel of how it kind of feels linear, that God chose us and elected us before we chose Him, before we knew Him, before us. And this is the time before. So we have this kind of laying out of the, of the work of our salvation. And there is the time that was before us. Then we see the action of now, of this moment, and every moment of our lives. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what was at work the moment we decided to go to church for the first time. Why? What changed? What brings us from God is some idea, something that sounds insane, something that sounds ridiculous, to I want to know more. Something changes in us. The Holy Spirit works. And that's the beginning of it. It's the moment that the Bible started to make sense. The moment we prayed a prayer and said, man, I choose to believe in Jesus as my Lord. I choose to live my life to seek after God. Well, that would be insane to do in yourself because I don't know if you've read through the Bible. There's some crazy things in here. What we, when we choose to say, I know, I believe it. I know it's crazy, but it, it's truth because it offers something that we can't really receive anywhere else and that's the work, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And he uses sanctifying. I think that's important. So it's not a, it's not a moment thing. It's a continual Thing. It's a work of now. And this is what uh, Paul talks about in Philippians. So this is the work of, of now, the work of the Spirit, is, as, as he lays out in Philippians 1.6, that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So it's this kind of continual process of our walk with the Lord. This is sanctification. And it's always happening now. It's always at work within us when we belong to the Lord. It's today and every day as we choose to pick up our cross and follow him. It's that thing that motivates us to do that, to pick up the cross again, even when we are in the midst of suffering. We have the before, so we're chosen. We have the now, the work of the Spirit. And we have the goal, obedience to Christ. This is what's to come. This is what should always lie ahead of us, what we're always working toward. As we continue to seek out the Lord daily, we're being changed and sanctified by the Spirit to live in obedience to Christ. I know I'm not perfect. I know I mess up. I know that I'm not there yet, but I have this thing ahead of me. I want to live in obedience to Christ. I want to live my life in a way that is pleasing to Him. And to obey Him is what? To love Him. 
This is our goal and our purpose. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You will keep my commands. This is what it is to obey him. And he sums it all up into the two great commands, right? Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So those are the things that lie before me. I want to love God. I want to seek him more. And that lies ahead of me. So again, I'm just one of those people. I think linear. I have this kind of before. God chose me, called me, elected me. I have this work of the spirit within me. And then I have this goal set before me. Set ahead of me that I always can continue to aim for. Now, of course, all of this happens, the relationship with God, the calling of God, the sanctifying work of the Spirit is all done through the authority and covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is basically the message for today. Already done? No, we're just barely getting in. Everybody get comfortable. This is basically the message today, to understand the expression of our salvation that Peter is trying to convey here in his introduction, because this is such a debated truth. I think let's take some time to go in a little bit deeper with some of the terms here and exactly what they mean. And first, let me just say that even though I do feel that it is linear, as I mentioned, it's not actually linear. Any one of these three things, work of God, the work of the Spirit, and the work of Christ, are in no way separable from one another in our salvation. I want to be very clear about that. They are in no way separable from one another, meaning all three, the work of the Spirit, the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross, the choosing of God for of us, God's choosing of us, they are all necessary for our salvation. All three are required you cannot take any one of these away and still have biblical, biblically defined salvation. Another thing I feel important to state is that Peter wants us to get this. He wants us to understand this truth. He wants us to receive it as it's meant to be received in order to gain everything we can out of the rest of the letter. And I believe that when we truly understand this, man, God's word opens up in a new way. The experience we have with him opens up in a new way, which we'll be getting into a little bit as we go. Because I think when, if we're going to, he's going to talk about suffering, and I, I immediately question myself, how could we enter into suffering willingly? As we talked about, it was, this was right around the time of Nero. So right after they had read this letter, not a year, maybe two years later, the persecution of Nero began and people were being burned alive in the streets and yet the church continued to grow. That's crazy. Who would want, willingly walk into that unless they understood something that others didn't get? And I think this truth is that. To really see all three parts of the Trinity in our salvation brings a freedom in our walk with the Lord. So Peter starts with identifying the believers as God's elect. This is where we'll start and we're going to spend the majority of our time today. I believe, or the reason I want to spend the most of the time on this is because I think that we hear a lot about Jesus, which we should. Jesus is important. 
And we know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that when we believe on him, we are saved. We know this. We know that the work of the Spirit is is working within us. We talk a lot about it here anyway, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that he is changing us and molding us, that our will changes, our desires change. And this is what then begins to snowball and help us to become a new person. And it starts the beginning of our belief As Paul says, we are new creatures in Christ, but it continues all through our life. And we know a lot about this, but I think we often tend to, and or maybe too often we tend to not talk about the Father's involvement in our salvation. How he called us, how he elected us, how we belong to him. And of course, through Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, but we tend to forget about God's involvement. And I think that can be a dangerous thing to do. So God's elect, elect also, as I mentioned, is it also means chosen. This is the same word in Greek that Jesus used when he chose his disciples. He elected them. He called them. He chose them specifically. He called them to follow after him. And he says, or uh, yeah, in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. I love that verse. It's quoted a lot in churches, but generally just the last part. Whatever you ask in Jesus' name, you will receive. Yeah, but let's not forget the part where he says, I didn't, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you. And we see this whole encapsule again. Again, these things always overlap. They, again, you can't really separate them. The three, the triune uh, work in our salvation. So we see Jesus saying, you didn't choose me. You think you, you think you would have been able to choose me? That following me, knowing where your life would lead, you would have done it? No, I chose you. That's why you followed me. And I appointed you for a purpose. So again, we see the purpose line in there where Peter talks about it as being obedient to Christ and Jesus says to bear good fruit, fruit that will last. There's a purpose in it. There's a reason for it. We see this beautiful benefit in or coming out of this truth of our calling, of our election that Christ did with his disciples, we can then ask anything in his name and it will be given to us. These truths come together. But it starts first with an understanding that God chose me. The image of our salvation is found all through God's word in this way. And the reason that we find it all through God's word is because it's his plan. It's not my idea. It's not... Peter's idea, it's God's plan. God has always had a plan A. I would love to go in deeper into this, but there's just not the time. God always had a plan A. And what I mean by that is that God created us. God created Adam and Eve. He wasn't naive. He knew they would mess up. He knew that they couldn't do it. And yet he loved us so much. And in his love for us and his longing to love us, 
from the very beginning and have a relationship with us, he already had a plan. He already had a plan set in motion to save his children, to save his children. He already had a plan. And his plans for us are good. We know this, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. His plans are, for, are good. How much more is that demonstrated in our very salvation? That God had a good plan for us to belong to him. God had an idea. He had a plan in place to save us. And we can ask, why would God do it this way? Why, God? Why this way? It doesn't make sense to me. You could have done it this way or that way. And I think we've all had moments of, I believe, or moments where we're guilty of feeling that we'd know better. That if we were God, we would have handled it the right way. That if, if we were in that position, we would do things right. As if we can put ourselves in God's position The truth is we don't know why he did it the way he did it. But he did. He did it the way he did it. This was his plan. And that's a truth that comes to a point where we have to choose to accept or not. But it's his plan. I don't always understand it. But I trust him. And we won't always know. We won't won't always be able to fully grasp God's actions on a small scale in our everyday life and on the bigger scale of our salvation. We can choose to trust in an all-knowing God who is the creator of everything over our very best efforts, our smartest minds. We can choose to trust an all-knowing God over that. He will always have the upper hand over us. He knows what he's doing He's been around a little bit longer than us. I look forward to the day when my son, he's only one, almost one now, when he can talk and if he's anything like me, we'll be pretty sure that he knows everything better than I do. If God is going to pay it back to me what I had to, what I put my parents through. And I mean, it's ridiculous. A one-year-old, a two-year-old, a five-year-old doesn't know more than their parents And yet sometimes we feel we know more than God. And yet how can we compare to God? We are not even children in comparison to him. The point is God has a plan. When he makes a decree, when he makes a decision, there's always an action that follows. And that's good news to me. Because I don't like the idea of of believing in a God that sent his son to die and sat there by the cross with his fingers crossed. I hope somebody believes. I hope this isn't in vain. I hope I didn't just do this for nothing. I believe in a God that knows what he's doing, that is sovereign, that had a plan and a purpose in everything he did. Every action, every decree, He knew what he was doing. He wasn't just waiting to see how things would go, how things would turn out. He's in control. And he has a plan for those that belong to him. 
God always knew he would send Jesus. And there was a time set in history from the beginning of when that would come. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul says it this way, or points it out to us. But when the set time had fully come, so there was a set time, and when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. He's saying, this wasn't, this wasn't just like giving it a try. No, there was a set time that those who belonged to him would be adopted into his family. There was a plan. God always had a plan and a set time in history when Jesus would create a way for us to enter into relationship with God. We have... We don't serve a God that had to simply hope. He chose us. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And he chose us in him, that's talking about Christ, he chose us in him before the creation of the world of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. That's good news to me. That he loved me first. That he thought of me first. That he knew me first. When I read this, it moves me really deeply because I think, why me? Who am I? When he set this plan into motion, I had done nothing good. I had done nothing noteworthy, nothing that would have earned me any right to be called the son of God. Who am I? That God would set a plan in motion to see me adopted, to see me holy and blameless, through Christ. This is a great love. This is a great act of love. A love with purpose, with vision, with intention. As we would, as human beings, understand love in our own experiences and relationships. The movies declare, the, or have this idea of love at first sight and but love with intention, love with purpose, love where you seek someone out and seek out the benefit of them, that's much, much deeper, much more powerful, much more long-lasting. This is the love we have through our relationship with God. It was intentional. When I first began, when I first began to understand this truth in my life, I remember the moment well. It filled me with both a terror and a tremendous joy and peace and knowing how unworthy I am and how loved I am at the same time. I love that song we sing, I am loved by you. It's who I am. And this truth is what rings in my heart every time I sing it. It's who I am. The day I was born, the day that I understood this truth, the day that I 
declared I would seek the Lord and received him into my heart. There was a purpose in it. I am loved by God. It's who I am. I, I, my identity as a Christian starts with a deep love extended toward me, as the verse says, even before creation itself. Now, we sometimes go to this place of, why does this really matter? Why do I need to know this? I believe in Jesus. Isn't that enough? Well, I just shared my own personal experience to me has shown that this truth of God's election deepens my relationship with Him and the experience I have in His love for me because it makes me come to a place of complete unworthiness. Complete, which ushers me into complete devotion. Because what else can I do but be devoted to him? Give him everything I have. Not because it helps me be better in his eyes. Not because it makes me more righteous. Not because it makes me more called. But because I love him and I want to give everything I can back. But I think there's more than just my own experience. So I want to point out three things that tend to be brought up with this doctrine that I think actually can be benefits are, are positive things rather than negatives with when we talk about this. And the first thing I would look at is that election and understanding of election should make the believer long to worship God more. And that's what I'm pointing out. I kind of just said that. That's my experience is that it brings me to this place where I'm just in complete devotion, completely bare before him. And all I can do is just say, God, I love you. God, I want to give you everything. I want to serve you because you love me so greatly and so deeply and so unworthy. I'm so unworthy of that love. And yet you give it anyway. Our salvation comes from the Lord. And that in itself Right should bring us to a place of deeper longing and desire to worship Him and to love Him as we understand His love and grace through our salvation. But God's election, though it is something incredibly difficult to fully grasp, I believe can open us up to a deeper understanding of our relationship with Him in, its, in all its complexities. What we can do in all of this when we reach that point of, I don't get it. I don't understand why you did it this way. What about this or what about that? We can do as, as Paul did in Romans and just be in awe of a God who is so perfect in his plan and in his richness of wisdom. I'll read this verse. Romans 11, verse 33 through 36. And this is, Paul is responding to these questions of election. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul points to the mystery and it drives him to glorify God, to praise him, to give God glory for this amazing work that he's done in saving us and calling us. 
So I think that election can drive us to a place of a deeper longing to worship him. And the second thing is election should be an encouragement for evangelism. This is something that tends to go the other way. People ask, well, what should we evangelize? What's the point? Some see election as a hindrance to evangelism, but evangelism, why should I share the gospel if it's God that chooses them? But I think the reality is the exact opposite. And this is my experience. That it actually should give us boldness in sharing the gospel. It should give us boldness. Because again, we don't have a God that's hoping. He has chosen people. And when we preach, when we speak the gospel, when we tell people about the truth of Jesus Christ... I can tell you from my own experience, I always assume every single person I talk to belongs to the Lord. Because what else would I assume? And I want to preach as though, and I want to speak as though, God is choosing to use me and my foolishness and my weakness to usher His truth into someone's life. And so I want to speak that truth with clarity, with precision, Because we know that it is through us that God chooses to reach the world. That's why it should embolden us to evangelize. Knowing that we will not do it in vain. God has a plan and a purpose. So we can assume that everyone we meet, everyone we talk to, fits that category. Because we don't know the mysteries of God's plan. We just know our call to speak of God's love and grace and see how he uses us to call his children to himself. In Acts 13, 48, we see this exact image played out. When the Gentiles heard this, so there's this long sermon, they've just heard the gospel, they've just heard the truth. It says, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Not everyone believed, but those who heard that truth, it was through that preaching, through the hearing of the gospel, that they believed. So there should be an encouragement to speak God's truth of Christ's salvation to everybody we come in contact with. Third thing is that election will humble us so deeply before God as believers because it's his plan and he will do what he wants and we humbly choose to trust in him I think of the example I heard this somewhere don't remember where of an airplane most of us probably everybody here has been on an airplane at least once and when you get on the plane they have now the screens it used to be that they would tell you the plan, but now you can actually even see the plan. But there's been a plan made, a flight plan. They know the altitude they're going to fly at. They know the direction, which cities they're going to be flying over, which stops they'll be making. They know the plan. And when we sit on that aircraft, nobody runs up to the front and says, why are you going this way? Why are you flying at that altitude? That's crazy. You should fly 500 meters higher. Or 500 meters lower. Why would you do it that way? I want to know. I want it explained to me. Nobody does that because we trust him. Because I don't know anything about flying a plane. 
So how could I go up to the pilot and demand that he describes to me, even though he has years of schooling and experience in choosing the plan that he has, that he should then describe and explain to me his reasoning? And yet we go to God and demand to know why. As if we know better. Even though we would never do that in, our re- in, the, in the world we live in. I think Germany especially. It's like forbidden if somebody has at least one doctor in their name to question their authority. I found that quite powerful here. And yet we would so quickly question God's judgment. So I think when we understand this truth, it's humbling. It's, I'm going to sit on this plane and trust that the pilot knows what he's doing. I'm going to sit in my relationship with the Lord and be thankful that I have it and trust that God knows what he's doing, that God's going to bring us to where we need to go. Paul in Romans makes this point. I won't read the text, but he, in response to this kind of warning, demanding an answer from the Lord of why he does this, He points out, who are we? And we see this image of the potter and the clay, the creator and the creations. And he directly asks, does the pot have the right to question the potter? Does the creation have the right to question the creator? And I would say God is gracious with us. We can bring our questions to him. I'm not saying that God forbids those things. But if we come to a point where we... I have to choose, I'm going to trust in the Lord even though I don't understand and humble myself before Him or I'm going to be upset that I don't understand it, that I can't wrap God's understanding of the universe into my mind, I would say I would lean towards humbling yourself before Him. And sometimes He reveals truths to us that we seek later on after we've humbled ourselves a little. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes some things we won't really ever fully understand, I think, in this life. But don't be discouraged by this. And I also want to point out, don't, don't feel like this makes God something far away. Because I believe the exact opposite is true. The election of God brings intimacy with him. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He is our Father. As we looked at it a minute ago, we are adopted as sons and daughters. And that word foreknowledge is not mean for awareness. It doesn't mean that he just knew what was going to happen, that he read the book and he read ahead of what your life would look like. It means he knew you every step of the way. He was there. It's an intimate knowledge. In Jeremiah 1.5, we see a similar depiction of this kind of knowing When uh, God is talking to Jeremiah, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That's the image for everybody who belongs to the Lord. Not everybody's a prophet. Just want to be clear. But... He knew us before we were formed in the womb. Before we were born, He set us apart. He had a plan that He put in place. When it 
This is what it means when it talks about God's foreknowledge. It's an intimate and personal knowing. He knew you, he formed you, appointed you, adopted you as son, as daughter. God is not far off. God is not an office man sitting in his desk, going through paperwork, making decisions about this or that in our lives. He's not far away. He's close. He's closer than our skin. He was there before we were formed in the womb. He knew us. He's there in every breath we take. And he calls us his. When we belong to him, we are safe forever in his loving, caring arms. And can trust in his plans for us that are good. So in conclusion, I want to cap it as Peter capped it. And we could go into a lot about the sprinkling of the blood. We could go a lot more into the sanctification of the Spirit. But as I mentioned, I think these, this aspect of God's election is the thing that's most distant from us. But I want to conclude with, as he did, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And that's the point. This is good news today. We are loved and known by God. We are called and chosen by Him before we could do anything to deserve or earn it. That is, by definition, grace, which is what we are saved by. When we say we are saved by grace through faith, this is what we're talking about. The grace is the, is the foreknowledge, the work of God in calling us to Him. We may not be perfect, but we don't need to be perfect. We simply move forward day by day as the Spirit works in sanctifying us, molding us, changing our will and desire to be ever more in tune with Him, in tune with God, and longing for the Lord and seeking after Him in our lives. And we can live a life of love for the Lord and for one another which is our purpose in being obedient to Christ. And this is our peace. We see our grace and our peace in the work of our salvation through the Trinity, through God, the Spirit, and the Son. And in this truth, I believe we can let grace and peace be ours today and in great abundance when we receive this in our hearts. I want to invite the band to come back up as we'll prepare to close our service with uh, one final song. So I would invite you guys to stand. If you'd like, we'll worship together. We believe that worshiping together is also a part of our calling as believers. So let's sing together to the Lord.